Right now, we just expand our mind to think about all sentient beings in samsara with their myriad of different experiences right now, but everybody uh, trapped by ignorance, anger, and attachment. So generate the wish for not only our own liberation, but to be able to lead all sentient beings to liberation. So last time we were talking uh, about how some of the afflictions that seem very strong in our society nowadays are not specifically mentioned in the text, uh, but they are definitely related to the root afflictions. Okay, and so your homework, which I don't know if you did or not, was to uh, check on those things, especially worry, fear, and anxiety, and see what other afflictions uh, they are related to and how what antidotes you can apply to the other afflictions and to fear and worry and anxiety. Okay. So anybody here have fear, worry, and anxiety? <laughs> yeah? Do you see how, it's, how they're related to attachment? Yeah? That we want to hold on to something, and yet in our world everything is changing all the time, so there's nothing really to hold on to. And somehow we have to learn how to be at ease with that. Yeah, we want to make everything predictable, okay, and secure, and so we develop, you know, countless rotas, so we know exactly every minute during EML what every person in the Abbey is doing, and no one shall stray from that rota which I saw, and it's this wide, wide and this long, and, uh, you know, you better just keep to it, keep to it, yeah? So even if circumstances change, you follow the rota, okay? And if everything falls apart because you follow the rota and you, you aren't flexible, then you keep following the rota. 
because it brings you security. Yeah, even though everything's falling apart. Yeah. Or you might try something uh, really fantastic, like contemplating impermanence and learning to be flexible. Yeah. And throw the rhoda in the fire. What will we do without that rhoda? It will be total chaos. E-M-L chaos. We can't have that, can we? Okay. (laughs) So we're on page 104. (laughs) Yeah. The order in which afflictions arise. So it goes from ignorance to anxiety to fear to worry. And then circles around to you forget ignorance the second circle. You go, what was it? Anxiety, fear, worry, anxiety, fear, worry, anxiety, fear, worry, anxiety. And that becomes your mantra. Okay? Anxiety, fear, worry, anxiety, fear, worry, anxiety, fear, worry, anxiety, fear, worry, anxiety. So hot. (laughs) Flexibility, no. Flexibility, no. (laughs) Okay. So remembering impermanence is, is quite good for our mind, yeah? And when our mind says, oh, but I don't like impermanence, I want to hold on to something that is stable, then we just have to say, yeah, the only stable thing is your refuge if you have taken refuge, if you have developed refuge in your mind. And if you can call that refuge up during times of anxiety, fear, and worry. Yeah, so that's what we need to rely on at that time. And accept impermanence. Yeah, Lama Yeshi used to say, come, come, go, go. And it's true, isn't it? Things come, come, and they go, go. And we don't know when they're going to come, and we don't know when they're going to go. But they're definitely, whatever comes is going to go. That That is for sure. Okay? Because nothing... You know, anything that is conditioned, anything that is a composite of various parts or factors is has the nature of impermanence. Yeah. And so it's good if we familiarize our mind with that so that when it uh, comes in our life, we don't freak out and say, uh, excuse me, but uh, this isn't in my schedule today. Yeah. I, it's not on the road that I have to evacuate for the fire today. It's not on the road that, you know, my car broke down. And it's not on the road that, you know, somebody insulted me. Oh, dear. Yeah, we better get our rotas better, huh? 
so we know exactly what to expect and we have everything under control. (laughs) Okay, so we're talking about the order in which the afflictions arise. So the way the order in which the afflictions arise is presented, uh, the way way the order in which afflictions arise is presented, it should say the presentation of the order in which afflictions arise depends on whether ignorance or a view of of personal identity, whether those two are regarded as separate or not. Okay. So seeing them as different mental factors, the two knowledges, okay, one by Vasubandhu, one by Asanga, say that ignorance uh, is a mental obscuration that cannot see things clearly. On the basis of ignorance, okay, you start out with ignorance, view of a personal identity mistakenly believes the aggregates to be a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Okay? All other afflictions follow from this. So from ignorance, this obscuration that does not see reality, then view of a personal identity, you know, grasps the aggregates as a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Okay. So this is analogous to not being able to see clearly in a dark room, like ignorance, and mistaking a rope to be a snake, like the view of a personal identity mistakes the aggregates to be a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. So from that, attachment, anger, and other afflictions swiftly follow. Vasubandha lays out their sequential development in the treasury of knowledge. Okay, so ignorance, then doubt, then wrong views, then view of a personal identity, view of extremes, view of rules and practices, view holding wrong views as supreme, and then arrogance, attachment, and anger. So it's interesting, this list of how they develop is most of the views come first after ignorance. Yeah. So here's what Vasubandhu said. Initially from ignorance regarding the meaning of the four truths. Okay, so ignorance is obscured regarding the four truths. Then doubt arises whether or not there is dukkha. That's interesting, isn't it? Because you would think we all know there's dukkha. But when you feel good and you're happy, you're not so sure there's dukkha. And you think, you know, everything should be happy and dukkha is some kind of temporary uh, um, aberration from that. And eventually things will go back to being happy because... That's how they should be, right? Right? Yeah, we should all be happy. Okay, so from ignorance arouses doubt, wondering whether there is dukkha. 
From that, by relying on an inferior spiritual friend. Okay, so you have a mental, a spiritual mentor who is, you know, not too, too up on things, who has very, all sorts of wrong ideas. Then uh, one engages in erroneous teachings and learning. Okay, so your teacher teaches you the wrong stuff. Uh, oh, what's a good example? Like, um, what is it? Prosperity theology. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if 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 you uh, create virtuous actions, you're going to be rich and famous. Yeah. So give more to the church, and you'll be richer and f- famouser. Okay, it sounds good. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, who, who knows what it is, but all sorts of wrong kind of, of theologies. And that produces the wrong view that dukkha does not exist. In other words, dukkha is this temporary uh, aberration, uh, but, you know, everybody's going to be happy. Okay, from that arises the view of a personal identity that grasps the aggregates as I and mine. And from that arises the view of extremes that grasps the permanence or annihilation of the aggregates. Um, okay, so remember that the, this view of the extremes sees that the I that exists the you the I that has been grasped by view of a personal identity, it thinks that that I is either eternal and doesn't change as it goes from one life to the next, so you have some kind of eternal self or soul, or that I at the time of death ceases and there's nothing. Okay. So those are two very prominent views in our world. If, you know, if we ask people and check, a, check around, people usually believe one of those two. Okay? There's a permanent, immutable soul that goes on. Yeah? Or, at the time of death, there's nothing. And, uh, yeah, yeah, most people believe in one of those two. Okay? From that arises view of rules and practices uh, that grasps the view that there is purification from holding those extreme views. Okay, so rules of a view of rules and practices, it holds that things that uh, it holds that that things that do not purify the mind are actually the mode to purify the mind. And that practices, you know, uh, practices that do not function to help the mind do help the mind. And the rules, the precepts that we have, uh, you know, the wrong view of rules and, and practices makes up all kinds of strange precepts. Okay. So we can see, uh, you know, if you take something like the, the Ten Commandments, there are some that are very, uh, that are the same as in Buddhism or similar to Buddhism. 
Okay. In in most theistic religions, you can kill animals. In Buddhism, no. Okay. But then there's other ones, uh, you know, among the Ten Commandments that Buddhists don't hold. Okay. Like worshiping idols of God or, you know, those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, wrong views of rules and practices. The usual examples that are given are things from ancient India. Okay, so for the one for rules is usually uh, the example given is animal sacrifice. That if you sacrifice animals, you will have good fortune. And the uh, the example given of wrong practices are saying that. Uh, doing the Brahminical practices exactly, perfectly, pronouncing everything correctly and at the right speed and so on, that that is the way to gain realizations. Okay, So that's ancient Indian practices, and that's the examples that are given. But I think it's, it's useful for us to think, you know, of what we hear nowadays, you know. So one of them could be, uh, the idea that killing heretics, killing non-believers of your religion, brings you rebirth in heaven. Yeah? So that would be a view of, of a wrong rule, you know, the wrong ethical kind of contact, uh, conduct and saying that that's virtuous. Okay. What would be something about uh, practices? What would be a practice that we see people doing that, uh, you know, is supposed to be uh, virtuous and purifying the mind but doesn't, aside from walking on fire by, what's his name, Tom Robbins, somebody? Yeah. Okay. But But things like that. Huh? Baptism, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it doesn't mean that we're criticizing these religions. It's just saying that, you know, or we're not criticizing the people who follow these religions, but we're saying that some of the things they do don't bring the results that they think they're going to do, they're going to bring. Okay. Uh, okay, from okay, so from the uh, from that meaning the view of the extremes arises the view of rules and practices that grasp the belief that there is purification from holding these extreme views. Okay, from that arises the view holding wrong views as supreme. Okay, because once you've established your wrong views, then, of course, they've got to be the best ones because I would never believe anything that's false. Okay, so whatever I believe, even if it's a wrong view, and I, but I think it's a correct view, then, yeah, I believe my wrong views to be ex, uh, supreme. Because uh, from that arises view holding wrong views as supreme, because what was believed to provide purification is held as a supreme view. Okay, so thinking that animal sacrifice or baptism or killing heretics or whatever is, uh, you're, you believe 
that wrong view that that actually is going to purify your mind. From that arises arrogance and attachment for one's own views, because, of course, um, we're arrogant because our views are better than others, and then we get more attached to those views. And then hatred comes after that, that despises the views of others and and despises the people that criticize our views. Okay, so that's the way the Vibhaka, the, the, well, for the Vibhasakas and also probably some of, of the Chittamadras because of, if it's, oh no, this is just treasury of knowledge. So it's the Vibhasakas. Um, you know, maybe some Satantrakas, how, how they hold the, de- the development. Yeah? I don't see the logic that connects the wrong view that dukkha does not exist, mm-hmm. leading to the view of a personal identity. Yeah, I don't particularly see that either, but it could be, you know, that a view of a personal identity is coming up because that's the basic thing that we have, okay? So it may not be that, that doubt directly leads to view of a personal identity. But based on the ignorance that came before the doubt, then, yeah, that view arises. It could be like that. Yeah? I was looking up above, and it seems that um, view of a personal identity is an innate affliction, according to the prasangikas. Yeah, but we're not at the prasangikas yet. Okay, because it seems... Strange to say that, like, a teacher came along, and then that's how you learn this innate affliction. Yeah, but we're talking Vivasaka right now. Mm -hmm. What I just explained was Vivasaka. It's not Prasangika. So is it not innate in the Vivasaka system? Uh, No. I don't think it's it's innate. Because they say Mm -hmm. that stream enters, which would be comparable to path of seeing, eliminate view of the personal identity, but they don't uh, eliminate ignorance at stream entry. That only happens at our hardship. Yeah, so they have a, a different setup of, of how things arise and what's eliminated and so forth. Okay, so that's Vibhasaka, Vasubandhu. Hmm? Okay, now sages such as Dharmakirti and Trandakirti and their followers who assert that a view of a per- that the view of the personal identity is ignorance so this differs from the vibhasakas from vasubandhu so they present another sequence as outlined by Dharmakirti in his commentary on reliable cognition which we've been studying with Geshe Topke So uh, Dharmakirti says, once there is a self, there is an idea of another. Discriminating self and other, attachment and animosity arise. All of the faults come about in association with these. Okay, so here is quite a different presentation. Uh, And you can see already that this is uh, corresponding more to uh, 
the, to the low rig presentation that we're used to. Okay. Then Sonkapa expands on, the, on this. Okay, so he says, when the view of a personal identity, which is ignorance, so ignorance is the root of everything, but view of a personal identity is a type of ignorance because the prasangikas say that ignorance isn't just obscuration, but it actively grasps things as inherently existent. And view of a personal identity actively grasps the self as inherently existent. Okay? So remember how the, the lower schools and how the prasangikas define a view of a personal identity is different. Because the lower schools say that it grasps the aggregates as a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. And the prasangikas say that it grasps the mere I, not the aggregates, it grasps the mere I as an inherently existent person. Okay, so when the view of a personal identity, which is ignorance, apprehends the self, discrimination arises between self and others. So there's a real me, and what's the first thing I notice? There's something that's not me. There's other, okay? Then once you have made that dis distinction, you become attached to what is associated with yourself and hostile towards that which pertains to others. Okay, so as soon as there's me, then there's what's not me, which is not, not as important as me. Why? Why not? Because I'm attached to what anything that pertains to me, I, my, or mine. That is the most important step, thing. Yeah. Then what pertains to others, especially if others interfere with mine and my happiness and me and what I want, then hostility towards them. Okay. So hostility is, you know, another form, form of anger, yeah. So as you observe the self, your mind becomes inflated. So you have the attachment to self, the hostility, because whatever is others is a threat to self, yeah. Because if there's other people, they can take what I have, they can harm me physically, they can harm me mentally, you know, so I'm unprepared for attack. Yeah, I have, the Pentagon is, is uh, ready, you know, it has, it has the greatest budget, I think, of, of all the other departments, probably. Yeah, so first thing, defend the self. Okay. Then you're keeping on observing the, pet, the self your mind becomes inflated with arrogance. I'm the best. Okay? I'm the best. I'm the most important. Yeah. Why? Because I am me. There's no other reason needed except that it concerns me. So it's got to be the best and the most important. 
So you develop a belief that this very self, after you have the arrogance, this very self, because that arrogance is like the conceit of I. Yeah, I am. Mm. Yeah. So you develop a belief that this very self is either eternal or subject to annihilation. So it's you're proud of the self. It is eternal. I exist forever. Yeah? I am a, a superior, superior soul that is never, nothing can destroy me. Even death can't destroy me. Yeah? And then the flip side of that is at death, I just go out of existence. Yeah. And so you can see in so many religions this idea of a permanent, indestructible soul. It's so comforting to believe in that. Yeah. Now you're going to say, but Buddhists say there's rebirth. Aren't we saying that there's a soul that reincarnates? No. Aren't we saying that there's a mind that reincarnates? Yes, but the mind is impermanent. And the self that is merely designated in dependence on that mind is also impermanent. So there's a continuum of the self, but there's no fixed, immutable, unchangeable thing that goes from one life to the next. Yeah, because if there were, okay, if there were, then in our next life, we should be who we are this life, if there's a permanent soul, yeah? Or if one life you're born as a grasshopper, uh, you, you know, then you have a grasshopper the next life and the next, you know, you have a... Uh, a soul that doesn't change. Yeah. yeah, the church went through this big thing about wondering if animals have soul souls. That was after they wondered if women had souls. Yeah. First they, they wondered if, if women had souls. Yeah. Then they took on the animals and finally the grasshoppers. Okay. Yeah, and, and Ian, there's there's very different views here about that across religions. Uh, when I lived in France at the the monastery there, we made friends with some Catholic nuns, and we went to to visit them for a day or two uh, once. And we were uh, eating, and there was a spider or some some kind of bug, you know. And one of the sisters stood up to smash it, and I stood up to take it and carry it outside. And we both kind of stopped without bumping into each other. And, and that's when we realized, oh, we have very different views about what is acceptable to do with bugs. Yeah, they were very surprised that, that we didn't, you know, kill them. And we were very surprised that they were ready to kill them. Okay.
So you come to believe in the supremacy of a view of the self and the like. Okay, so that is view holding wrong views as supreme. Again, you're proud of your wrong views. And you also come to believe in the supremacy of the detrimental practices associated with such views. Okay, so that's view of rules and practices. So here, this is saying that once you hold wrong views as supreme, okay, view, yeah, then that is going to give way to view of rules and practices because then you make up all sorts of wrong precepts and wrong uh, observances, practices, thinking that that those are what purify the mind. Similarly, you develop the wrong view that denies the existence of things, such as the teacher, the Buddha, who taught selflessness, and that which he taught, karma and its effects, the truths of the Aryas, the three jewels, and so forth. Okay, so once you have the wrong views of of rules and practices, then you're also going to disbelieve the other teachings that the Buddha taught. Or you become doubtful as to whether such things like the three jewels and the law of karma exist or not. So this is, you know, we're going through and we're reading it, but this material you have to sit and think about. Yeah? Because otherwise, you know, to, to think for ourselves creatively, how do these things link together? And in my mind, how does, do they link together? Okay. And then we, we might even have to admit that maybe we have some wrong views of rules and practices, or we have some extreme views or whatever. It is interesting to note that the Vibhasaka version of Vasubandhu places doubt and the various afflictive views before the disturbing emotions of attachment, anger, and arrogance, whereas in Dharmakirti's version, the disturbing emotions arise before the afflictive views and doubt. So different approaches. Then the next um, section is called factors causing afflictions to arise. So some people assert that afflictions are an inherent part of human nature and as such are hardwired into our nervous system or genes. That's the view of many scientists, yeah? Not all of them, but many. And also the view of many people who aren't scientists. Okay, so it's hardwired into our brain, into our genes, into our nervous system. Okay, so why do you become an alcoholic? Because you have genes that make a tendency to alcoholism. Why do you, you know, any number of things like that? Okay, and I personally think that view can be very dangerous. Number one, because it leads people, it could lead people to not take responsibility for their own actions because they just say, well, it's hardwired or it's my genes and there's nothing I can do about it. Number two, the other danger is that 
if people think that this is something innate in somebody's body, then maybe at some time society may think of killing some people because they have defective genes and defective bodies that bring about wrong thoughts or wrong actions. And isn't that, I mean, that's kind of what was going on during the Holocaust, you know, that, that these people have, uh, you know, something innate inside of them that is inferior. They are not of the Aryan race. So for the benefit of society, better to kill them. Okay. And, you know, such views probably float around in this country. This was also, I think, uh, a kind of view that led to white supremacy and permission of many white people to kill black people because somehow they, you know, physically uh, in their body, they were defective in some way. I mean, this was the whole eugenics Am I saying it right? Eugenics thing that they that they science went out to prove. It's amazing, you know. Science does a lot of good, and sometimes it quote quote proves a lot of rubbish. Okay, so this kind of things, the whole eugenics movement, uh, you know, fed into racial ra white supremacy and uh, you know racial discrimination. Because now there's look a scientific reason for it. Yeah. So that's why I think this kind of view can be, you know, that it's all embedded in our genes and our nervous system. That's why I think it's quite dangerous, that kind of view. Okay. So some people assert that afflictions are an inherent part of human nature, and as such are hardwired in our nervous system or our genes. Although we may be able to modify their effects, we can never be free of them. Okay? So this uh, thing of fight, uh, fight or flight, hardwired. No way to be free of it. Okay, the, the thing that I am the most important one and I've got to protect myself before others, yeah, cannot be changed. So all this meditation on cherishing others more than self is hogwash from that view. Can't do it. Okay. So from a Buddhist viewpoint, this is a narrow view of human potential that offers little hope for the improvement of humanity. Doesn't it? You know, uh, this view says uh, enlightenment is impossible. Liberation is impossible. The best we can hope for is to modify our genes a little bit so that we uh, don't kill each other all at once, but kill each other more gradually. Okay. So not through a world war, but through uh, climate change. Hmm. Okay, something like that. So it's a very narrow view of human potential. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it just sees us as trapped in these bodies and the limitation of our bodies, and it doesn't see the amazing potential of the human mind. 
because it thinks the mind is the body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Venerable um, Jampa just sent me an article about Jeff Bezos, why he wants to go to space. And he says, because um, human greed cannot be reined in, eventually we're going to run out of resources on Earth. So we have to just do this. There's no other option. Yeah. And that seems to come from the materialist worldview. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, there's no mind, there's no ethics. It's just. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, before it was, you just kept, at least in the States, westward expansion. But now, you know, what can you do? I guess we could put all of our garbage in the ocean and make new land masses out of that. Yeah. In Singapore, they do that. You know, you put, you put the garbage in and then you build buildings on top of it. So, uh, but he wants to go to space. Yeah. And I wonder, space travel, well, that's going to create more pollution. But create more pollution is good for the economy because then you have to employ more people to get rid of the, of the pollution. I don't know. So as described in volumes one and two of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion, the Buddha's view is that although coarse levels of consciousness and the brain are interdependent, remember it says coarse levels of consciousness and the mind are interdependent, they are not the same nature. And one is not the other, Okay, they do not necessarily, uh, yeah, one is not the other. They're two different things. They have different continuums. Thus, the subtlest minds are not bound by the physical limitations of our bodies and brains. Okay, an example of that is, uh, you know, tukdam, when some of the highly realized people after their breath and heart and brain uh, functions stop, are able to meditate. And they meditate for a good chunk of time, and then when the consciousness finally leaves the body, then the body slumps. Okay. So thus, the subtlest minds are not bound by the physical limitations of our bodies and brains. In addition, as conscious phenomena, afflictions can be eliminated from the mind stream by applying their counterforces. So their counterforces to the afflictions do not require surgery. They do not require taking uh, pills. Okay, they are something that are we do by our mind. Okay, we change the mind by the mind. They are so these afflictions are not our inherent nature, and liberations from afflictions is possible by demonstrated uh, as demonstrated by many highly realized practitioners throughout history. Okay. So there's, there's proof in the pudding. There's liberated beings in history. The arising of afflictions in ordinary beings is to some extent related to our bodies. Okay. When we are physically weak or deprived of physical necessities, we are more susceptible to anger. 
Yeah, when we're hungry, when we're thirsty, when we're tired, when we're sick, we get angry more easily, okay? Because we're attached to our body, and when the body, we're experiencing unpleasant physical feelings, then, yeah, we dislike unpleasant physical feelings, we get angry. We are more inclined towards attachment, especially sexual desire, when we are healthy and our bodies are comfortable. That's true, too. You know, when we're healthy and we're lying around and our belly's full, then attachment, yeah, we can follow all the attachment we want to because we feel quite happy. Yeah, we don't need to go out and, and look for food or something else. When we get angry, when uh, we are hungry, or when we are depressed as a result of chemical imbalance in the brain, two factors are at work. One is our present physical situation. The other is the seed of afflictions in our mind streams. Okay? So when we're getting hungry, when we're angry, when we're depressed as a result of chemical imbalances in the brain, there's something physical going on, but there's also something in the consciousness that's happening too. What is it in the consciousness? The seed of afflictions. So the seed of afflictions is the potential to generate a new moment of a certain affliction, even though that affliction is not manifest in our mind right now. Okay, so you may not be angry right now, but I don't know about you, I still have the seed of anger in my mind stream. So at the slightest little trigger, I can get angry because that seed will bring forth a manifest state of anger. Similarly, there's, you know, the seed of arrogance or attachment. Something comes, you know, then whoop, they come up too. Okay. So some people believe that scientists may one day be able to stop all disturbing emotions through medicines that regulate body chemistry and techniques that alter genetic makeup. Okay. Now, from a Buddhist viewpoint, science may come up with things that help people who suffer, you know, by changing the, uh, you know, how your neurons flash and and uh, the level of your dopamine and serotonin and things like that okay so i'm sure science can contribute to human well-being but can they solve the problem completely and get rid of all afflictions completely that i don't think so okay however as long as the seed of afflictions are still present Afflictions will arise when suitable conditions come together. That's it. No matter how many pills you take. Yeah. The conditions come together, afflictions arise. <laughs> well, even if we don't run out of the pills. Yeah. Sometimes the, the pills don't always work, do they? Yeah. I mean, when, when you look at statistics, let's say, for, for depression or whatever, certain antidepressants work, you know, to a certain percentage, but not for 100% of the people. 
Yeah. So afflictions can only be fully overcome through spiritual practice. So what are the principal factors that cause manifest afflictions to arise in our minds? Okay. So, yeah, what, you know, why do you get angry? Why do you have attachment or arrogance or jealousy or laziness or whatever? Okay. So there's six conditions or combinations of them that play a role. And these I find very interesting. And these are really uh, things to do some meditation on and really check your own experience uh, because they can give you a lot of awareness about how your own mind works and what are the triggers for your mind. And when you know the triggers, then we know what we have to be aware of and either avoid or apply the counterforce to. Okay, so first one, the seed of afflictions. They're a prominent cause. Why? Because, you know, they're innate and they're in our mind stream until we, you know, attain either our hotship or the eighth ground bodhisattva. Yeah, those seeds of afflictions are there. So they are a prominent cause. Because they remain on our mind stream and go from one life to the next, we are not free from afflictions. An external or internal factor can stimulate these seeds to give rise to manifest afflictions. Okay, so if we look in the desire realm, this is the situation of all beings. We see with the kiddies, okay, if there's something that comes uh, in their environment that they don't like, they get angry. Yeah, if there's something that comes in their environment that they like, they get attached. Human beings are the same way. Yeah. I remember the very first Dharma course I went to, Kyabje uh, Zopa Rinpoche, was saying that human beings are not that different from animals. Because a dog, for example, yeah, when it sees somebody it likes, it wags its tail and it goes up and it's friendly and happy. And when it sees an enemy, it barks and it growls and maybe jumps on the, on the enemy. Okay. And he said, in the same way, what do human beings do? We help our friends and we harm our enemies. Yeah. So same as what dogs do. We may not help them. We not, we may not have a tail to wag. Yeah. And we may not growl in the same way, but we growl. Yeah. We growl in words. Yeah. Yeah. The dogs just. Yeah. But it, it's the same, isn't it? Help your friends harm your enemies. Yeah. Are human beings really that different than, than animals? Animals at least, you know, get angry when there's some immediate threat. Yeah, human beings make up threats in our mind. Yeah, and then we get really upset about who knows what. Animals kill only when they're in danger or when they're hungry. Human beings kill for sport. 
They kill for just to prove that they're powerful. Yeah. So His Holiness always says we have this beautiful human brain, a beautiful human mind, but we often don't use them for what's really beneficial for us. Okay. Mm. Okay, then the second one of uh, the conditions that cause afflictions to manifest in our mind. So you have, you have to have the seed of an affliction for an affliction to arise in your mind. Once you eliminate the seeds at our hardship or as an eighth ground bodhisattva, then afflictions can no longer arise in your mind, no matter whether you have any of the following conditions. But as long as the afflictions are there, any of the following ones can, at least in the desire realm, make the manifest afflictions arise. Okay, second one, contact with certain objects. Yeah, so the objects we contact in our life can stimulate afflictions to erupt. Attachment arises when good food or an attractive person or a big paycheck or, you know, the, uh, the flag of uh, whichever side you, you know, political party you favor, uh, when the scoreboard for your home team, uh, you know, gets more points than the other. I mean, there's so many things uh, that make attachment arise, okay? You just see something pretty, and it's like immediately... Oh, that's pretty. I want it. Yeah. It's hard to just say, oh, that's pretty, and goodbye. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Anger springs up when we are around people who disagree with our ideas or challenge our opinions. Or when it's too hot, or when it's too cold, or when people are banging the dishes around, you know, in the kitchen, or when they slam the microwave door, or when they threaten us, or when, you know, they're, they're drunk driving and, you know, they're aiming towards us. I mean, again, so many things can make uh, animosity and anger arise. Okay? Jealousy. Lots of external things can make jealousy arrive, arise. We see somebody who is more, who is better than we are in a, in a certain attribute. Okay. They're stronger physically. They're more attractive physically. They're smarter in terms of, you know, uh, understanding how fish, grow, you know, go upstream. Uh, and that's important to us because we we also are a fish scientist. So somebody knows more about fishes yeah, than we do. And they're closer to getting the Nobel fish prize <laughs> than we get jealous. Okay. It's it's interesting, isn't it? You know, because we all have our own little things that are like so important to us. Yeah, if you play the uh, you know uh, 
well, I'm thinking of cellos because, uh, you know, somebody came here and plays cellos. You know, I, how often do you think of playing the cello? Yeah, is this something important in your life? If somebody's better than you in playing the cello, do you get jealous? No. But if you play the cello and somebody else is better than you, when you started playing the cello at the same time, do you get jealous? Mm. Okay. So we all have our own little departments where we compare ourselves with others. And then, you know, we get jealous when somebody is better. And when we think we're better, then we get arrogant. Yeah. And it can arise over anything. Yeah. The color of my robe is better than the color of your robe. Yeah. Or my robe is better. Yeah. Because it's older. Yeah. Your robe is a new one, which means you haven't been ordained for very long. My robe is old and it has tears and it's turning pink because I've been washed <laughs> with the shem tops too often. But that is my status symbol, you know. Okay. So, you know, we can find anything to be proud of and make ourselves better than other people. Yeah. And what we get arrogant about and what we get jealous about sometimes is so, it's laughable. It's really laughable. Yeah. And I think when you have children and you're watching your kids and what they get upset about, what they get attached to, it's so easy to say that, you know, kids just like, chill out. These are not important things in your life. But when... Something like that comes in our life, then we don't tell ourselves to chill out. We say, this is something that's really important. And what I'm feeling is right. And if your kid says, Mom, Dad, what are you getting so jealous about? That's stupid. You know, you go, shut up, kid. But yeah, the kid's right. Yeah. Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition, you know, whenever people are, the, the energy is getting revved up, you ring the mindfulness bell, and then everybody stops and breathes three times. So I've heard of stories where parents are starting to get revved up, and the kids ring the mindfulness bell. Yeah? And the parents are shocked, you know. The kids say, you're doing the same thing like we do. Yeah. You ring the mindful, mindfulness bell when, when we're upset, we'll just ring it for you too. Yeah. So this is why we have to learn how to laugh at ourselves and not take ourselves too seriously. Okay. Detrimental influences is the third one. Okay. So these are, are such things as bad friends, uh, and they have a strong influence on our way of thinking and behaving. Okay, so a bad friend is not necessarily somebody who has horns and who comes up and says, 
I'm going to get you. <laughs> okay. A bad friend is often what we call a good friend. But from a Dharma perspective, they are a bad friend because they don't have Dharma values. And they want us to be happy, but they want us to be happy in a worldly way. Okay? So we want to go to a retreat, and our good friend, who is actually a bad friend, says, why are you using your vacation time to go on a retreat? That's useless. You know, you should go out and do something and have fun and relax. Otherwise, you're just staring at your belly button. Okay? And we say, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, let's go to wherever you want to go to. Okay? And let's go out and have a good time. Okay? So there's many people in our lives that are attached to us and that care about us, but they have different values. And so what they encourage us to do to find happiness is stuff that winds up being non-virtuous or it winds up being situations in which we lose all of our, uh, our conscientiousness about ethical values and we just engage in what everybody else is doing. Okay, so a good friend says, oh, yeah, there's a party. You know, come, let's go to the party. There's an office party or there's a whatever party. Uh, let's go and let's have a good time. And, you know, and you don't really want to go, but they're pressuring you. And then, you know, they say, oh, come on, you're so uptight. Yeah, come on, let's go have a good time. So you go, okay. And then you go and then people are drinking, and so what do you do? You drink. Everybody's doing it. Even though you tell your kids, don't be influenced by peer pressure, what do you as parents do? You're influenced by peer pressure, and you do what everybody else is doing. Yeah? And, and and so then you just get yourself into a whole lot of big messes. Yeah? Because your friends want you to be happy, but the way they want you to be happy is by doing stuff that can lead to engaging in non-virtue. And then, yeah, the the rest of the messes in this life and in future lives follow from that. Can you think of, of times in your life where you've done what other people have wanted you to do because they were pressuring you and it didn't wind up good? Huh? Okay, so adults recognize the strong influence of peer pressure on children. But they seldom take stock of the extent to which their own emotions and behavior are affected by the wish to be part of a group and the desire not to be seen as strange or different from others. So if you live in a part of the country where you have a whole bunch of friends that are 
QAnon believers, you know, and they turn you on to QAnon because it's so fascinating and it's so interesting. And you can predict all these things that are going to happen because, you know, uh, what's his name is going to be reinaugurated as president on August 13th. So be prepared. Yeah. So somehow he's going to replace Nancy Pelosi, and then they'll get rid of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and then the Speaker of the House will become the president. Smart, huh? Yeah, you don't know QAnon? Okay, so you have friends who believe this. And they tell you this, and then you say, oh, well, maybe I'd really like him to be pres again. So, yeah, maybe this will happen. Okay? I mean, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? What's going on? And how many people b believe lies? Because their friends believe lies. Yeah? Vaccines are going to destroy your DNA. They're, the vaccine is going to change your DNA. So don't take the vaccine. Yeah. So die of COVID. Yeah. It's better to die of COVID sooner than take the vaccine, which is going to change your, G, your DNA. Okay. Even though scientists have proven it does not change your DNA. Okay. It's very interesting. Many people of a certain political party who were against vaccines and telling people not to take them uh, are now taking them and encouraging people to take the vaccine. The vaccine rate, uh, rate of people taking vaccine has gone up 14% in the last week. 14. Yeah. So that's good, isn't it? Yeah. So Steve Scalisi, who from months and months and months has said, don't take it, uh, has, he just took it, okay? And some others are now encouraging people to do that. But of course, they've encouraged the vaccines from the very beginning because, and, uh, you know, and, and we should really give more credit to the previous uh, administration because they were the ones who developed the vaccines. Even though we said don't take them. <laughs> anyway, you know, I think you get the point that, that we are easily influenced by what we hear other people say and what they think, you know. And so things that have no evidence at all yeah, our superstitious mind will believe. And this is why Lama Yeshi, you know, this term namtok I talked about before, our minds spinning round and around and around about all sorts of things. He used to call, translate namtok as superstitious thoughts. Yeah? Because when you think, what is superstition? It's believing something that doesn't have evidence because it might be true. Isn't that? Yeah? 
So Upeka is getting darker. We better be careful. He's going to be a black cat soon, you know? And then he'll be really unlucky. Hmm? And don't step on a crack because you'll break your mother's back. Yeah, remember that one? Okay, what other juicy ones did we learn as as kids? Oh, yeah, don't go under a ladder. Yeah, the number 13. And and some hotels nowadays do not, and not only hotels, but condo units, don't have a 13th floor. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Friday the 13th. There's been many in our lives, you know, and we've lived through all of them. (laughs) Okay, so, okay, but it's good, you know, I'm using kind of very extreme examples, but it's good to ask ourselves, you know, who do we believe and what kind of things do we believe just because they're a popular idea that's going around in the culture. Yeah. It, it's something to to really think about. Okay. So adults, don't take stock of, you know, how we are easily influenced by peer pressure, by our wish to be part of a group. Nobody wants to feel like they're out of it. Yeah? So all the incels, you know, they find other people on the on the web to hang out with, the people who are dissatisfied, find proud boys to hang out with. Everybody is seeking some kind of group that supports their beliefs and their identity, just like we are. Yeah? Okay. But we're talking about wisdom and compassion, which I don't think anybody would think is a conspiracy theory. Yeah? Seeking the approval or praise of people we care about or respect can make us compromise our ethical values if we are not mindful. You go to a family dinner and a relative has this great uh, new investment proposal, some new something, something that is just coming out that if you invest in it now, you're going to make a ton of money. So they tell the whole family so everybody can invest in it. And you get so excited because this is going to be the jackpot thing that's going to make you rich and everybody invests in it. And you know what happens to those things. Okay, but, you know, it's somebody that that we're related to and our family who's all excited. We want to make them happy, you know, so so we follow along with it. And we get excited, and then we start telling other people, too. If a close friend is upset with someone, we tend to get angry at that person as well, don't we? we hear somebody gossip and say nasty things about somebody, then our opinion of that person also. Mm-hmm. If a family member is strongly attached to a pol- particular political view, 
our attachment or anger toward it will e- easily arise. Yeah, this is what Venerable Tarpa is dealing with now. Okay. And, uh, yeah, several people, I think, are dealing with it. And I know my generation, you know, family dinners were were often fraught. Yeah, my parents were good, but but we didn't fight about politics. We had fights about other things. But many families during the, the ages, the time of Vietnam, family dinners were just, you know, people really upset at each other. Okay, so that's detrimental influences. So you see why they're, they're good friends, but they're bad friends. Mm-hmm. So we have to really see, you know, who is really a good friend, who encourages our virtue, and who encourages our non-virtue. Yeah? And sometimes the people who c- encourage our virtue say things to our, us that we don't like. And we get mad at them. But if we really stop to think about what they were saying, we would realize they're right and that we need to change our behavior and our way of thinking. Yeah. So good and good and bad friends. It's, this is worth some meditation sessions. Okay. Then fourth, verbal stimuli. Oh, I just looked at the clock. Uh, let's stop right now for for questions and maybe answers and comments. So of the six, it seems like the first one, the seeds are necessary mm-hmm. for the affliction to rise. Mm-hmm. And here it said that the an external or internal factor can stimulate it. Are all possible factors subsumed into two through six? Like, is it effectively that you have to have one and at least one of the others for the affliction to hmm. arise. I've never, I've never really thought about that. I don't think, just off the top of my head, I don't know if it has to be one of the six. This is something to examine in your meditation. Yeah, look when afflictions come up and see if it's one of those six. And when it talks about an internal factor, that could be, like a thought that you're having or a memory that you have, and that sparks the affliction, okay? So it could be watching a movie, that's an external stimuli, or remembering, you know, something that happened years ago, that's an internal one, okay? So I don't know whether it's... uh, It seems those six seem to cover a a lot of territory, don't they? Yeah, but but look in your own experience and see yeah, if you can th- think of others that that aren't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Seem that that um, what we're calling here distorted attention is always present. It would seem like it. Yeah. yeah. And also, I mean, three through six, you know, there's there's a chance over time that we can reduce, you know, our reactivity, but really. Mm-hmm. One and two, the seeds of the afflictions <laughs> and contact in the desire realm. That's a little bit disappointing. Yeah. Well, the the seeds of the afflictions are going to be the hardest. Yes. Contact with the object, we can control. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we take precepts 
and why we live a, the, a monastic lifestyle, because it separates us from certain objects that spark afflictions. It's true. And in my own experience, I can just shift what is going to fire it. So I'm here at the Abbey. Yes. And there's a beautiful meal and kabumo. Yeah. Or I go outside and there's a beautiful looking tree. You know, it's just, it just, it's just constant. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is to pick the affliction that afflicts you the most. Pick the one that is the strongest and work on that. Okay? So, you know, when I look at my afflictions and the kind of karma that, that create, that they create, certain afflictions are really not, they, they may happen often, but the, I don't do horrible negative things because of it. I mean, every time I see chocolate, I don't go around, you know, insulting people or stabbing them or clawing over them to get to the chocolate before they do. Okay? You know, I have some restraint there. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, but, you know, I'm kind of sick of chocolate today. But, um, or, you know, I mean, there's some restraint. So, yeah. But then there's other things we see where, boy, you know, our contact with that object and whammo. Yeah. I was just going to share another story about uh-huh. how diets, like food diets, uh-huh. can be so um, harmful to people. And Put I'm, your mic up. So, oh, yeah. so food diets. So, for example, a few years ago, um, I really was sympathizing with people who are wanting to go on a specific diet where you eat almost nothing because it may reduce your risk if you're genetically, maybe your parents had dementia, you might be in line to get dementia or Alzheimer's. And so there's this specific diet you could follow, which according to some experts would really reduce or get rid of your potential to develop that illness. And so at that time, I went and talked to my family doctor who I trusted a lot, and I still trust, and I talked to him about this diet, and he said, that sounds like snake oil to me, and if you want to starve yourself to death, go ahead, but you still might get dementia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh. Uh-huh. I-, I was thinking about this. I've still been, I've been stuck back on the fetters. And thinking uh-huh. about sensual desire as uh-huh. the, you know, the primary fetter. And it made me start to wonder why the heck ascetic practices aren't effective. Because if you really start looking at how easily we, we are pulled by anything with the senses, it almost seems like just doing asceticism is the only way to, to really, I, I get that it just only suppresses it for a period of time. Yeah. That's the thing. It only suppresses it for a period of time. It does. You are not applying an antidote. You're Just avoiding smashing the, it. Yeah, and that's what they're designed to do. Yeah, it, what did that's what say? the ascetic practices are more designed yeah. to do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Earlier, you mentioned um, hearers, and someone is asking online what a hearer is. Oh. Okay, uh, a hearer or shravaka is somebody uh, on the, pr- there's, um, we have the hearer path, the solitary realizer path, and the bodhisattva path. 
Okay, so hearers and solitary realizers are Buddhist practitioners who aim for arhatship. And then the bodhisattvas aim for full awakening. Okay. Anything else? Yeah. When you were talking about the strongest affliction, Mm -hmm. is the strongest affliction the one that motivates you to do the most destructive actions or the one that's arising most in your mind? I think it's the one that, you know, I, if I would work first, first on the ones that make me do the most destructive actions, you know, of course, the, you know, there may be one that, that arises again and again, and it doesn't make you do the most destructive action. It, it's not a number 10, but maybe it's a number eight, but because it arises so often that it gets bumped up, whereas the one that's a number 10 doesn't arise so often. You know, so you can do your own math on this and, and, and figure out, yeah, how to work on it. I remember at one, um, one of our monastic gatherings, there was, uh, I forget what the topic was, but uh, there was one Theravada monk speaking on it and me speaking on it, and there were some other people. So the Theravada monk went before me, and he was talking about being in Thailand and how the people, uh, you know, offer food to you. And he loved mangoes. And so every lunchtime, he was really hoping that the, the, the lay people, when they went on Pindapot, would offer some mangoes. And he would crave the mangoes and look for them. And when he got one, he would see the attachment coming. And then he would really have to work with his mind to like subdue the attachment or maybe give the anger, the mangoes mango away or something and his whole talk was you know about just the the difficulties and the stress involved with attachment to the mango and then I got up and talked about my situation with being Gegu of the macho Italian monks you know and I, I said I wish that attachment to mangoes was all I had to deal with. (laughs) You know, that would have made my life so much easier than being faced with the the situation I was faced with. Yeah. So I thought that was was kind of uh, humorous. Mm -hmm. We all have our own things that that we... uh, uh, focus on, you know. Uh-huh. Did you have something? Oh, oh, okay. Okay, then let's dedicate, and we will take up with number four next time. Where is number four? There it is. <laughs> okay. I find these six very interesting, you know, and very applicable to our lives.